It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I think it's a little lazy to say that. Mm-hmm. Because I often then say he played, I think, 600 games at the highest level. His career was spent in, in, in the Premier League. He captained every club he played for, which was which was Palace, Villa and Middlesbrough. 56 caps for his country and captain. So he's captained every club he played for, his country. Um, you don't get to do that if you're a shrinking violet. Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast. I'm with my right hand man Dej and he's sitting on my left. How are you today bro? I'm doing good bro. You know, special guest today. I think we've mentioned several times on the pod that we want to sort of bring all the different stakeholders of football onto the podcast and I think we've ticked another box because we've got a fountain of knowledge, you know, on the podcast. We've been picking his brain so I know our listeners and, and the people that love the podcast are going to love this one. Definitely. The minute we started talking about football, we knew that we have a student in the game, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the house. But before we introduce our guests, I just want to plug the socials. Follow our Twitter at podcast underscore TBG, our Instagram at pod TBG and our TikTok TBG pod. We're on the road to, you know, 30k subscribers. So please Help the channel by leaving a thumbs up and leaving a comment. And let's help get TBG to 30k followers. So, we are delighted to announce we are joined in the studio by sports psychologist Michael Caulfield. Welcome, welcome, Thank welcome, you. Welcome, and welcome. I hope I get you to 30,000 followers this week. <laughs> My family will watch anyway and they'll give it a thumbs up. So, we're on our way. 100%. I think. Just to give us some context, let's say if you're on a flight to Australia and you've got 20 hours to burn and there's someone sitting next to you that you don't know and they say, hi, excuse me, what do you do for work? What do you do for a living? How do you answer that question? That's, that's probably the, the hardest question I've been asked to describe <laughs> what I do. <laughs> the easy way is that I, I probably work in sport and that if you get a reaction... And he thinks, I've got 20 hours sitting next to you. And, <laughs> and by the way, that did happen to me recently, going to Australia last year, wow. this time last year. So they say, oh, you work in sport. What do you do? And then I say, I'm a sports psychologist. And that might open up a different conversation. Uh, and normally the question after that is, oh, what does that entail? Uh, if you say that in football, people tend to run in the opposite direction because it's still, 
and I mean this now with, with no embarrassment at all, it's still one of the most difficult job titles in football because you can say you're a physiotherapist or a strength and conditioning coach or a nutritionist, um, and that's perfectly fine, normal. But when you say you're the sports psychologist, there's there's still a bit of defence there for all the obvious reasons I completely understand and accept. Yeah, so if we're going to scroll back and just talk about your origins, where you came from, your history as a child, I know going back many, 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 many years ago. I can't remember that far back, but I'll have, <laughs> have a go. Yeah, so as a child, what were your interests? Were you always drawn towards football, sport or...? Uh, I was absolutely besotted with the beautiful game ah, because lovely. Pele was my era absolutely my era the first World Cup I ever saw was, was Pele 1970 I can see that tournament now with the, with the grainy commentary and the fuzzy pictures because it was, it was Pele in 1970 my first memory real life memory is going to watch football as a 6, 7 year old with my father in London he took my first game was in 1967 long time ago. Different game, different world, different everything. And I mustn't just delve into that treasure chest tonight. And that was Man- that was West Ham United versus Manchester United. And I saw Bobby Moore, Martin Peters, Jeff Hurst from West Ham. But more importantly, when I was seven, I saw George Best. Yeah. I saw Dennis Law. I saw Paddy Crerand. And I saw, which is quite relevant at the moment, I saw Sir Bobby Charlton play football. And to this day, he's my all-time footballing hero, Sir Bobby Charlton. Recently died, of course. Mm. And in my house at home, it's proudly hung a portrait or picture, signed picture, Bobby Charlton in the red shirt with the white trim. And it says, to Michael, best wishes on your birthday, Bobby Charlton. And I got it on my 10th birthday. And I cried with delight and joy as it arrived in the post with a Manchester postcode. It took me... 30 more years to work out it was my father's handwriting (laughs) (laughs) because he didn't want to disappoint and I was the only person in my family who liked football my family like it now because I'm involved in it a bit but I was the only football loving person in my family and in those days my father uh, lived uh, in Hatch End Pinner at the top of the tube here here in London Middlesex Mm. and uh, apparently every Saturday night or Sunday, if I can get the pink on a Saturday and a Sunday, and I've got no embarrassment to say that I did it yesterday morning, I get the paper, uh, not online still, and I look at every result, and I, and I remember every result, the goal scorers, the crowd, and in those days, age six, seven, and eight, I could recite by Sunday morning every result from the classifieds the night before, which were published in, in the paper, and the goal scorers. Wow! So what? And team? I loved it. I loved the beautiful game. <laughs> so what team were you drawn towards? Sir Bobby Charlton, George Best, Paddy Crair, and Manchester United in those in those youthful days. And the first game I ever saw on television was Benfica versus Manchester United in the European Cup final in 1978, which now everyone has seen because when Sir Bobby died two weeks ago, they replayed those mm-hmm. goals from that final with Brian Kidd and George Best. And so that that was my introduction to football, and I've never stopped loving it. It hasn't loved me back always, but I've never stopped loving it. So obviously you fall in love, you know, with the beautiful game at the age of seven. So are you thinking 
I want to have a career in football. I want to work in football. Like, what is your thinking? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. We all dreamt up. We all dreamt in those days of being Bobby Charlton. But I was never going to be Bobby Charlton. I didn't go to a school that liked or played football. And I remember going to see a school teacher in my early days at school. I was only a young teenager at best. And he said, "What do you want to do with your life?" And in those days, it was very much the traditional ways of life. And I said, "I want to work in football." And he said, "You." And he looked at me with almost with angry eyes. And he said, "You'll never work in football. You'll never work in football. You should go and make something. But it's it's not a game for for you. It's a game which no good." And to this day, I always think of that miserable man telling me I'd never work in football. Because what right did he have to tell me I couldn't work in football? I had no background in it, no family background, no playing traditions, nothing. My family weren't into football, but I was. I just want to quit. Do you mind if I just interject? Because I think that's something that we still that's still prevalent today, where like authorities can tell people, "Listen, you're not going to have a career in music. You're not going to have a career in football." So, what sort of like advice would you give to like a younger you if you you had a you know were pursuing a if I was being bit. polite I'd mm. say ignore them because mm. what right do they have to tell you you can't become an award winning podcast what right do they have to say that the answer is none absolutely none and the one thing I have learned over the years and then I met if I can just digress briefly I met a, a man called Stuart Warden six or seven years ago he runs the Brit school in, in, in Croydon oh yeah yep yeah. One of the greatest men I've met in my life. You won't watch this, so I can te- probably say this because you, you might not hear it. And he runs a school in Croydon with a 99.9% attendance rate, with very little mischief of wrong, poor behaviour. Why? Because he wants to make everyone in that school to have a career in what they love, which is music or arts or entertainment or culture or drama. And I think the education system, which is not to do with football, is, of course, it's, it's developing. But at times, you must play to people's strengths. Not so you can't do that. Because otherwise, we're just killing ambition and killing dreams. And um, no, what right do they have to tell you you can't do that? So I would say ignore them and follow your path. Because it's not their life. It's your life, not theirs. They sh- they've got no right to tell you to, to, to stop you doing that. None whatsoever. So I, talking, was quite, I was quite cross there, wasn't I, for a minute? <laughs> so talking about pursuing your dreams, I know you've worked in other sectors in sport, whether that's horse racing and stuff like that. So talk to us about that journey of going into the horse racing domain and sort of transitioning into football. Well, two days ago, or one, 24 hours ago, I had a reunion with the people I worked with 42, 43 years ago. Wow. When I left home, left school with no idea, literally no idea what I was doing. And I ended up in a village where I live now, just north of Swindon. So I always do, I always say, when people say, where do you live? I always go football grounds because that's how I used to think. And geography for me was UEFA Cup and and, and European competitions and World Cups. Geography was for me was World Cups and European competitions. So the nearest football ground to me is Swindon Town. Next one after that is Reading and Oxford. So that's where I live. And I went down there aged 18, 19, and I have, again, I'm not going to be embarrassed here. I was no good. I was useless. I was unfit. I was demoted. I, was, I, I wasn't a good young. I was an entitled little so-and-so. And the group who I met up with on Saturday, 43 years later, 42 years later, 
they taught me how the real world worked. And we lived in a hostel, eight or ten of us. We had nothing, no cars, nothing. We didn't have, there wasn't, no one owned a car, we had nothing. But we had each other and we had hope. And 42, 43 years later, we have two reunions a year and we're as tight as anything. And that got me into understanding discipline, the real world, sport, how it worked. And that was my starting point, aged 18. And I've I've worked it out since then. And uh, to this day, I'm still making it up a bit as we go along because <laughs> there is no there is no straight line in this. You have to work it out for yourself and meet people, make connections. And above all else, of those people I met on Saturday... 43, 42 years ago. We we joked, but we weren't joking, that we've all had different lives and different careers. But we've all... We discussed it over on Sunday, is that not one of us has ever been late for work intentionally. We always turn up. And the one thing I learned 42 years ago is always turn up. Like tonight. We had a few problems getting here. You had a few problems <laughs> getting here. We had to do a few phone calls. But we all turned up. And I hope that meeting you tonight, which is a pleasure... Is an indication of what I learned when I was 18. Just always turn up. 90% of success in life is just simply turning up. Even if you're not that good, turn <laughs> up. And I haven't always been that good or that lucky, but always turn up. And sometimes we don't now because sometimes it's easier not to turn up, but always turn up. Front up and show up. So obviously, just fast forwarding a little bit. So you're finding your path in in sports, and when do you get that first opportunity to work in in football? In football would have been in two thousand and three, four. Uh, I had a career uh, as the chief executive of the PJA. If you follow football, you've heard of the PFA yeah. and the LMA. I was chief executive in my mid-twenties of the Professional Jockeys Association. Uh, and that I did that for 15 years, and that taught me everything about them and about discipline. Uh, we did a thousand things with no budget, including things around mental health and well-being and concussion, and uh, which are now very prevalent, but we were doing it with no budget. Uh, we were making it up. We had to make it up. We had no budget. But my word is you're finding out building your business and your reputation you find a way to get things done as you are now and as did I and that started you started meeting people in other sports because they like going to the races particularly footballers particularly football people particularly managers as we know so I, I managed to make a few connections and then when I resigned from that job after doing 15 years because a jockey called AP McCoy yeah. said you're the one person who gets my madness He'd been to see three sports psychologists and he said, they didn't quite get my madness and me. You do. You should become a psychologist. So I did. It took me a number of years and they gave me some time away from the job in the evenings to train and study and qualify, which I did, which nearly finished me off because I'm not a natural student or an academic, <laughs> but I got the qualifications. I'm, it's the proudest day of my life is to get qualified with things ever. And I started from there. And uh, an agent, who's now very successful, rang me up and said, I know you from your previous life. Can you help a player? And I said, I'd love to. It's my first opportunity. And it turned out that he lived five minutes down the road from me. Literally five minutes down the road from me. And I met him. Uh, we're still in touch to this day. I'd like to think I keep relationships going. 
Uh, not always fee paying, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> just as someone you've helped. Yeah. And he played 650 games, mostly in the top flight, and had a good career. And that was the start of my first relationship with football. And to this day, I I, I write down every morning at home. Every I did it this morning. I wrote down how grateful I am, how thankful I am, and how lucky I am to work in the beautiful game. Although it's a hard game, and it's sometimes not the nicest industry, but I love the beautiful game, and I've never lost my I've never lost my boyhood thrill for football. Even with VAR, it hasn't <laughs> taken that away from me, because I still love the beautiful game and the characters, the players, the staff, and the managers. It fascinates me. As we spoke about, you know, psychology can be almost like a taboo subject. So back then when you took on your first client, was the club aware of this or was it just a personal sort of... Oh, it was very private. Okay. And I still urge players to this day to if, to work with people away if they want to away from the club, which because I think that's correct. Uh, and as this conversation develops, I think you'll understand that being in a club, you can do so much, but sometimes people want want to have support outside the club, as they should. And I encourage that also. So if one of my roles is to encourage that, that's also part of my role. So they get the support and help and understanding, because it's very, very private. Your emotions are unbelievably private. Your feelings are unbelievably private. You don't trust them with anyone. And to build up trust takes an awful lot of time and work and effort. Uh, so I want them to find trust somewhere in a game that sometimes isn't the most trusting. So you have your first client in football. What happens next? How do you build this sort of empire? <laughs> well, I've never... I love the question, but the one thing I'm not... And if, I, if I may say this, this is our first date, but if I can say this, <laughs> uh, I'm not a brand... Mm. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not even really a business. I'm, I'm myself. I just work independently, which is my choice. I don't want to become anything other than other than that. But I've always felt that if you don't go and look for opportunity, it won't won't come to you. You have to go and find it. And it was a jockey in those days uh, who was successful, and he was transferring his skill from being a jump jockey to a flat jockey. And he lived up in Darlington near Middlesbrough and he wanted to get very fit and he had to work at his fitness and understand fitness and conditioning for the first time. So I, I, I called the nearest football club to where he lived and that was Middlesbrough. I got the receptionist, Sue, I can still hear her. <laughs> Middlesbrough Football Club, Sue, can I help you? I said, yes, have you got any sports scientists, please? What? And it, she put me through. I mean, if you don't ask, you don't get put through. And Chris Barnes spoke to the jockey I believe they still speak every day to this day and he started training a jockey in his spare time after football and they formed a lifelong friendship so one day I said and I live uh, 232 miles south of Middlesbrough I know that now because I used to drive it twice a week eventually and I said can I come and see you with the jockey and he said yes come up one morning. So I did, I drove to Middlesbrough. There was nothing in it other than to meet the jockey and to meet Chris to say thank you. And he invited me up. Uh, there was some method behind it because you want to meet people. And that week, or that month, Middlesbrough were due to play in the last ever UEFA Cup final. Now what is the Europa League? Uh, and they were due to play uh, four to five weeks later in the last ever 
UEFA Cup, which I think was against Seville in Rotterdam. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mark Schwarzer, George Boateng, Stuart Downing, that, that era. And the captain was Gareth Southgate. I wonder what ever happened to him. <laughs> uh, and he was having treatment the morning I went up. He couldn't train. He, he'd had a hamstring injury. So I chatted to him when... Because I didn't go and watch training. didn't get in the way of training. And I still don't, by the way. And I just chatted to him in, in the treatment room. And we exchanged phone numbers. Little did I know, it's three to six months later, he'd be manager. Mm. Because Steve McLaren went to England. And Middlesbrough appointed him. Uh, and he asked me to join his support staff a number of months later. Uh, so I had three years working under Gareth and his team of coaches and support staff, many of whom I'm still in touch with, uh, at Middlesbrough. And that was my first lucky break. Wow. That's a and what a lucky break. A good football club, a good manager, an exceptional man, good staff, great coaches. Actually, one of them who's now working in Scottish football texted me this morning. So we're all... It started there. And I would urge anyone wanting to start a career in anything, I'm still asked, what advice would you give? I've had lots of interest in that recently, and I try and get back to every student. You you rang and I said yes. Yeah, straight away. Straight away I said yes, because I wanted to meet you. And I wouldn't do this on Zoom because then I don't meet you. Mm. And I still think the key to life is meeting people and connecting with them. And it takes effort and time and sometimes money you might not have but by meeting people and seeing people and greeting them, something will happen. Something happens. I won't forget you two now. I won't. If I bump into you in five years' time, which I hope I do for some reason, maybe because you've got the best... <laughs> Who knows? Who knows where you yeah, go with this? Yeah, but yeah. I've met you, and I'll remember this evening, and I hope so will you. Definitely. Wow. It's a funny old game, as you say. Well, I've got a, a stone in my pocket from my niece... You know, I, I take it everywhere with me now because it just reminds me of her because she's a wonderful young woman. And one of my other footballing heroes growing up, and I still say one of the best goal scorers I've ever seen in my life, and now I'll probably be losing. All your, you're down to 20k at this point, let alone trying to get 30k. <laughs> uh, but I still speak to current players and I ask them to watch videos of someone like Jimmy Greaves. Mm, and Jimmy Greaves, in his absolute pomp, was ridiculous. But as we know, he went on to have a career in broadcasting mm-hmm. once he recovered from his terrible addictions and illnesses. Um, and his phrase was, well, it's a funny old game. <laughs> and if ever there was a phrase to put football into simplistic terms, because now it's a very technical, data-driven game, scientific game almost, but my word, it's a funny old game. <laughs> and it re- life is a funny old game. But the more people you meet, the more people you get to know, I think better things happen to you. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, I want to talk more about your relationship with Gareth Southgate. Obviously, he's gone on to become England manager and he's having, you know, a decent career. But one thing that stands out about him is his empathy, his compassion, the way he sort of deals with big issues. I think that's my main takeaway from him, apart from the sort of managerial side. Was that element of him that struck a chord with you straight away when you met him? The answer is yes, and it still does. And I won't... It's a friendship now. It's not a professional relationship. Um, and uh, obviously I'm very biased here, very biased. But he's an exceptional person. Now, he's a very good head coach and a very good leader and a very good manager. But he's an exceptional person. But he was, when I knew him in his early 30s, let alone now in his early 50s, he's always been that. 
um, and what he's developed into, I think he's the, the thing I'll never I'll never be able to persuade people and have given up trying is how good a person and leader and coach and manager he actually is because in the words of another late broadcaster once who said to me said Michael some people will like you and some people won't mm. and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and for some people he'll simply won't be able to win them over if he won the Euros and the World Cup they still would think oh I know but I don't understand that because he's a man of great integrity which is not always easy when you become really quite successful he's, he's a very kind man and I remember when he got the England job and he was developing it Ian Wright another one of my footballing heroes I mean righty I mean he just is what a surname because he's just right he's Ian right 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 uh, and he said once I remember when Gareth got the England job he said I hope the players don't take Gareth's kindness as a weakness and they haven't he's also very ruthless as well by the way so don't <laughs> let's not un- misunder- misunderstand that but I, I think as an England manager, we've been lucky to have him because he's been a, a great leader. This country's not had great leadership at times in the last few years. It's gone through all sorts. Mm. But I think Gareth's a man of the highest integrity and honour. And you need that in, in leadership positions. Plus a good coach, by the way. No. He knows he knows it's football. <laughs> I think, like, speaking of um, detractors, what you mentioned earlier, and sometimes maybe myself, I'm sometimes I'm a bit critical of Gareth in terms of like from a tactical, uh, could have been a bit more brave, you could have went for the game a bit more. But what do you think England and Gareth need to do to take that next step to win a major trophy? I'm going to give you the most ridiculous answer of all time keep Jude Bellingham fit with a bit of luck <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one or two other players because this crop of players are I'm not going to burden them but there are some gorgeous footballers there I think to get to somewhere where you want to go in life you've got to remember you, there's probably going to be an awful lot of failure along the way and disappointments along the way and they've had two or three major disappointments but that group is the core of that group is is still together, and I think that they would have learnt so much from these past three tournaments. Uh, to I mean, Russia was a, a great success. Then it was the final of the Euros, and then the quarterfinal exit uh, last year. They're getting very close, and they're also getting better. So I think I'm going to use a word which you don't often hear in football, which I think is misunder, not misunderstood, but underestimated. You. Football is the most random game out there. It's random. Now, I know in a world now which is very scientific and very data-driven and, and all the information we now have on football, which is growing by the day, but do you know what you sometimes need? You need that bit of luck. And I learnt that because I'd been associated with Brentford for a number of years. The first game I ever went to uh, with Brentford, we lost 2-1. We lost 2-1. And as I walked down the steps of the old Griffin Park and saw the sporting director and I tried to say the right thing at the right time, so, oh, we thought we He said, don't, don't worry, I could play well, just unlucky today. I'd never heard someone say it with such conviction and with such confidence. I even learned in that first season, the league table can lie. Even after 38, 46 games, even then the league table can lie because it is the most random game. And I think to this day, Brentford played and lost the game 1-0 on the opening day of the season, about six years ago, I was there, 
uh, we lost a game to a team which had the lowest XG in the history of a winning before. I think the winning XG was 0.02. They scored with a header from 20 yards. And that was literally the only time they entered our penalty area. But they scored or our area. And they scored with a header from... I can see it now looping over our goalkeeper. Uh, and it is a random game. And I think sometimes we, we misunderstand and underestimate the element at the highest level. that You do need, particularly now with all the technology involved <laughs> in the sport, because your, if your heel is half an inch offside or an inch onside, my word, that can make such a difference. Uh, so I think they're doing everything right. But they have that luck with some injuries and players being available. Uh, I think the next step is just simply playing and competing at the highest level with the most energy in this to- in the next tournament. And I think they, they are have a favourites chance now. And I hope they do it because I think it would prove a lot of people wrong. Mm-hmm. And if I can say something else in the current game, uh, is that Ange Postacoglu is currently thriving at, at Spurs. Uh, he's he's really been remarkable in his first season in the in the Premier League, and he said something recently which everyone found gripping, thrilling, because as we do, we follow it online and we follow the mm-hmm. stories, and it, and it was it got a huge reaction because Spurs at the moment haven't won a trophy since I think two thousand and eight, um, and he he was asked about this. He went in that lovely accent of his, that beautiful <laughs> Australian accent. He went, my. He goes. There's got to be more to it than just just winning a trophy. There's there's, there's 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 a higher meaning to football than just winning a trophy. There's more to it than that. It's you've just got to enjoy everything about being associated with a team and a club. And there's some amazing last minute. He said, "There's more to it. There's more to it than just winning a trophy." And everyone, went, mm, God, that's incredible. If Gareth says that, it gets a different reaction. Mm. It gets a different reaction because you haven't won anything. Didn't make enough subs. You had the wrong oranges at half time. <laughs> um, so that's I think is interesting from a perspective point of view. But what do they need to do next? If those good players are fit and healthy, hopefully next June they'll have a very very good tournament. Mm, at the end of tournaments, naturally there's that feeling of what if we should have won it. You know, Gareth might not be the man to. He might be the bridesmaid and that never gets married in terms of winning that trophy. As a friend and as someone that's worked with him, when you sort of see that media scrutiny after a tournament, how does it make you feel? Uh, it, doesn't make me, it doesn't make me feel angry or cross, neither him, I haven't asked him, by the way. Uh, I, ju- I, th- I think if I could be brave here, because I'm relaxed in your company, which is what you wanted, I hope. Of course. <laughs> I think it's a little lazy to say that. Mm-hmm. Because I often then say, he played, I think, 600 games at the highest level. His career was spent in... In, in the Premier League, he captained every club he pl- played for, which was which was Palace, Villa, and Middlesbrough. Fifty six caps for his country, and captain. So he's captained every club he played for his country. Um, you don't get to do that if you're a shrinking violet. You don't get to do that, and you find a way from a his you know from from not not a footballing background to becoming. A very good player. Go to a couple of World Cups, go to a couple of European Championships, then lead your country. There's a pattern developing here, isn't there? Yeah. And I think that has to be respected. That's all. But if it comes good and they have a wonderful tournament and they win, it'll be amazing. But some of the moments that, that England have had in the last six years have been brilliant moments. 
even though it didn't quite... I remember Euro 96. Mm-hmm. I remember the days before Euro 96, <laughs> by the way. So I think sometimes as a supporter, as a fan, yes, you want the ultimate thrill of winning. We all do. I do. My word, I do. But sometimes those joyous moments and games and lake along the way, that's why it's a beautiful game, by the way. Mm. It's not perfect. And as I think I mentioned to you before we came on air, that it's the jigsaw puzzle you can never quite fully... There's always a piece missing. Because just as you think you've got the puzzle solved, you've lost a you've lost a bit. Your best player gets injured. Something happens to distract mm. you. It's it's the puzzle you can never quite solve, which why it remains the most beautiful game, because you can't quite ever master... It's beyond mastery. Mm. You never quite master football. It masters you, but you never quite master football. I think, yeah, that's brilliantly put. I think just to fast forward a little bit in regards to your current role, can you just give a, some sort of insight into as to what you do on a day-to-day right now? I've been very lucky to work at three clubs, uh, Middlesbrough for a number of years, and I'd like to think that because I've been at the clubs for a number of years on all occasions, Hull City, so Middlesbrough under Gareth Southgate, um, and then Hull City under Steve Bruce, and there's another fine man who's... <laughs> Another very fine man who's achieved so much in his life. Yeah. 900 games as a player, 1,000 as a manager, nearly 100 goals for Manchester United. Once. So, again, respect this, I think, rather than dis- disrespect it. Uh, so my third club was, was, was Brentford, where I've been for, gosh, over six, six seasons now, six and a half seasons. And that's why I write down on my... Every morning I write down how lucky, how grateful I am to have this wonderful... Opportunity. My role has evolved at Brentford and the way I work has also evolved over 16, 17 years working in football. So when I go to work now in football, uh, and this might shock some people, I this is this is this is the exact clothing I'll be wearing <laughs> at Brentford. A little bit colder now, so you can put a jumper on, but and your Brentford jacket as well that we have <laughs> coat, which the Bob kindly gave me, so I didn't have to nick it. Uh, but I, I I dress literally. This is my this is my work apparel. Uh, I'm not tracksuit based. I'm I've, I'm very rarely pitch side during training because there's enough people to watch training, and I'm not a qualified coach. Uh, and I'm being very open here because I know that people have this sort of almost this will to get closer to it. But you know about XG, your XG expert. Well, ever since I joined this wonderful club, and it is a wonderful club, Brentford, um, it really has been an amazing part of my life, and I'm thrilled, really thrilled to have been part of it and see it um, develop. Um, I've started studying and reading about maths, and I'm the worst math student in the world. During my qualifications to become a registered psychologist, I had to do research and published medical research the hardest bit was the mathematical data because I'm not a natural <laughs> mathematician it, it tires me, numbers tire me so I'm now reading books about maths including XG because I, ha- I wanted to understand more about how maths now applies to football a lot which I didn't appreciate enough before and I was in my late 50s by the time I started studying and understanding the role of maths and and data in, in, in football. So now, rather than be pitch side, I think I'm more used to writing, reading a paper on maths, but uh, I wouldn't do that during training either. Um, so I dress like this. I'm not pitch side. Um, and if ever I write a book, 
and the odds on that are not very short at the moment. But if ever I wrote something down in a few years' time, and it would never be, obviously, uh, breaking any confidences or friendships or, or private conversations, at least now I've got a title for it. And I can proudly announce to you on the Beautiful Game podcast that if ever I wrote some thoughts down to pass on to family and friends, it would be called, Michael, why exactly are you here? Because during pre-season training in Washington this season, Brentford had a two-week camp. I went for three days, not two weeks, uh, because there wouldn't be enough to do, I don't think, in, in, in those two weeks. Uh, and that would be that would be wrong from their point. They'd get sick of me and... and because you can be around too much. And it was the, the brilliant Ben Mee. Uh, at the last night of the camp, everyone's beginning to pack up the camp and we've got one more day and one match to go. I'd only been there two or three nights. And in front of just about the entire playing squad and coaching squad and sports science and operations, because it was a big it was like taking a band on tour. <laughs> and I've done what I've done. And Ben is sitting on, on a treatment table, uh, and he said, Michael? Said, yes, Ben. And he's almost calling across the room. He goes, why exactly are you here? <laughs> and we joke about it now, and I've joked about not joked about this in front of the players and the staff, but it was a really good question. Why exactly are you here? In a sentence, another coach from another sport said, Michael, what you're quite good at is you're good at keeping everyone on track. Because if you're a physio or a coach or a scientist or a nutritionist or an analyst, and there are so many different roles in football now, they're very invested and they work really hard in those roles. And I call that the invisible hours. We don't see the hours the analysts do for a meeting. I call Roughly, I think the equation is it takes an analyst five hours hard, deep work to do a five-minute meeting with the players or staff. So all these invisible hours have to take place. And I'd like to think now in football I try and keep people on track and because they all get tired, frustrated, in this crazy emotional game which is football so I try and keep people on track with the manage- with the frustrations the emotions the opinions which which happen only in football because having worked in a number of other disciplines and sports here's breaking news football is the most illogical <laughs> irrational emotional sport of them all because otherwise you wouldn't see the behaviour you see in the technical area happen if it wasn't all of those so I try and keep people on track and I've learned that sometimes two minutes five minutes ten minutes twenty minutes can be invaluable for someone I think as is also doing nothing and not many people admit to doing nothing but on more than one occasion a head coach particularly at the current club have sometimes said Michael how's your day what have you been up to and I have answered more than once, nothing. <laughs> and every time they've gone, oh, that's good. Because often you don't, it's the old Ferguson line, don't go looking for trouble because it will find you anyway. So it's just keeping things on a level track in the most emotional of sports. And it's the pleasure and thrill to do that. I, I am literally thankful for every day, including today. Yeah, I saw the piece that you done with Sky and Brentford when you were walking around the training ground with, with a few players and sort of having your chats. So in your role, do you seek out conversation or do you wait for conversation to come to you? 
you've nailed me. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone from Brentford ever watches this or lis- listens to this, um, they'll know my style. I've learnt to wait. Just wait. I live out in the countryside, so we're recording this in South East London-ish. Ish. Ish. <laughs> well, put it this way, I've come on a bus, a tube, a train and Doctors Light Railway to get here. That's my, that's my normal mode of... Yeah, that's My normal mode of transport is normally a tractor, a van, a horse. You know, I live in a rural... Yeah. Uh, a very rural area. And I, I've learned that if you try and catch an animal, they disappear in the other direction. If you wait at the side of the field, you might have to wait for a long time. Eventually, they'll think, what's, what's happening over there? What's he got? Got any food? Is he interesting? And I find, and I'm confident enough to say this now, that by being patient and by waiting, you'll get far more done. Mm-hmm. If you go imposing yourself on anyone, they're likely to do what the wild horse or the wild animal do which is run off in a different direction but I've learnt that I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm I don't present myself as an expert or a guru or a genius because not in alphabetical order or any f- order but the kit room the, uh, the physiotherapists the strength and conditioning coaches, the coaches themselves the analysts, the operations staff the media staff uh, those who work in preparing the players' food, the kit room I mentioned before, they are also brilliant psychologists in their own right. Mm. I've just got this title officially, mm. but I tell you what, I wouldn't get anywhere without their support and help because they are so good. Mm. So good. And if you go back 50 years, and I often do, I don't mind saying this, I don't mind admitting this because although the world has changed so much, and football has changed so much, mainly for the better. The line I also use is not everything we did used to fail. Mm. And some of the managers from 60 or 70, 50 years ago, which I studied as a boy, and I still study now, they had remarkable gifts of, of communication and leadership. What the Cloughs? And and the, the Shankleys, the Busbys, mm. the Steens, the... Bill Nicholson's. They might have been from a different... The Don Revis. Mm. Uh, and also the overseas coaches. There are some brilliant overseas coaches which have which have developed football which in the 50s and 60s. I still read their material on what they, what they said and did because it's still relevant. And I heard a debate at the weekend. Would, would, if Sir Alex was starting out now, uh, would, he be, would he be able to manage in the current game? I never say the word modern, by the way. I say current. Because in five years' time now, won't be current. Because that they would have passed on, yep. but Sir Alex and Shankly and all those great managers were innovators back in the fifties and sixties and seventies. They'd be innovators today if they were thirty-five, forty, in the way yeah. that some of the outstanding young coaches are innovators now. So would they be? They they would be. They would just adapt as we all have to do to the current environment, as I have to do. But they were also masters of of, of their trade, and I also say that I believe that today. And that the Beatles, the 60s, and they split up in the early 70s, the Beatles' new single has outsold every other single and record released or uh, released this week by five to one. Wow. Shakespeare's still quite popular, I believe. 
because he's still selling out theatres around the world. <laughs> uh, and people go and watch and see art or opera or music from a, from a different age because it's re- it's it, it lasts. It's timeless, yeah. It's timeless. And the managers of yesteryear, I still think, are timeless. And I, I look at their skills of communication and it still helps me to this day. Mm. Of course I try and stay relevant and current. I'm working with you tonight. <laughs> that, that says it all. It does says it all because I learned from another golden rule of mine. Not many golden rules. Here's another one. Always speak to the youngest person in the room and the oldest person in the room because you'll learn from both. Mm. And actually last week at the training ground, a young player in his very early 20s, we were talking again because talking is good walking around and just being natural about communication Uh, I don't go armed with books and phones and iPads because that can unnerve people and he did say you really enjoy your work don't you I said yes I find you and the whole thing absolutely fascinating and intriguing and inspiring he said why I said because I get to meet you and you're 22 23 and you played your first 50 games in the Premier League but I can go and speak to someone over there who's 40 years older than you and I can learn from both and I urge you to do the same. So I, I always try and speak to the youngest person in the room and the oldest person in the room because you'll learn just as much from both. Different, mm. but you'll learn from both. Talk to us about how you improve the mindset and the mentality of a player because someone that stood out to me is Brian Embuemo. Um, For me, one of the best players in the Premier League at the moment. Unlike... From a student perspective, when I used to watch him, I used to think, wow, this guy's got amazing talent, but he's a bit raw. But now he's in his third year in the Premier League. And for me, he's one of the best wingers in the country. So in terms of his mentality, how do you get from being raw to being now one of the best in the country? Again, you've nailed me. The success of someone like Brian is down to one thing, really. And that's Brian with the work the perseverance, uh, the willingness to, to learn. He's an exceptional young man, of course. Um, I think now it's his fourth season, I think, with the club and his third season in the Premier League. I was reading a piece of research recently which says that when a, a player comes from a league, he came from, uh, from the French leagues and comes to the Premier League or into England, it can take three seasons to fully adapt, develop, learn, because he was terribly young when he first arrived, so now he's mid-twenties, or coming up to his mid-twenties. So for the last three to four years, he's done nothing but learn, develop, ask. And again, if I go back to my answer about do you go looking or do you wait, You over that period of time, you get to know someone, and I think then you get, you should learn when to speak and when to withdraw, when to help, when not to say anything at all. And once you do that, and bear in mind he's been surrounded by superb staff, coaches, fitness, physiotherapy. He, so he's developed in every single walk of his life. Uh, I'm always amazed, it simply staggers me that someone like Brian, and he's not alone, there's dozens of examples, they, they arrive from... Uh, from a completely different country. They've never been to England before. They don't speak English. Within two years or a year, they're giving press conferences in English. Live. Pre-game, post-game, in-between games. Doing podcasts. (laughs) 
and I think not only they learnt to play football, they've arrived from into a completely alien environment. They have to adapt to that, to living in a, in a new country. And I always say to all the staff and anyway, in any in any sport, but in football, I say, imagine you've got a 19-year-old son, and you wave him up at the airport tomorrow morning to France, or America, or Asia, or anywhere you like, and say, good luck. You don't speak the language, you don't know where you're going, and by the way, you wouldn't mind scoring a hat-trick on Saturday, would you? <laughs> and we are so demanding now, you forget it takes time to develop, it takes patience to develop. And it can I believe it can take a player easily three seasons to fully adapt to playing in, in this country from an overseas league, or from a different league, even from League One or the Championship. So it takes time, and but it's not a person or a moment or a session. There are so many people behind someone like Brian developing. And I find him a, just a delightful, delightful man to be around. I just enjoy watching and I enjoy seeing him walk in the training ground. He makes me smile. Normally so does he. And he's thriving. And there are dozens of people like Brian, but the reason I like football and I like footballers, I lo- and I hope they can feel that subconsciously, I really admire and like footballers. And I've said this before, but it's the greatest meritocracy in the world. Because no matter where you come from, you're, if you come from the richest family in the world or a family with of literally, you've had to graft to get anything. The only way you make it in football is if is by being good at what you do. And so you can't buy a game of football. You can buy a club. You can buy a competition. You can buy anything you like. You can't buy a game of football. And it, that's why I still believe it's the greatest meritocracy in sport in the world because the only way you get there, Brian and hundreds like him, is by working it out for yourself and persevering. Yeah. And that's what it does. And that's why it remains the beautiful game. It does because they have to work it out. Whether you're from southeast London or southeast France, you have to work it out. And it takes so many components. And I like them and I admire them hugely for what they do. Mm, hugely. <laughs> and I hope that shines through. Hope it's shining through on this. Definitely. Another player that's under scrutiny or a player that's under scrutiny in the Premier League is Darwin Nunes at Liverpool. We're both sort of Liverpool supporters. Um, some people say his finishing can be erratic, etc., and stuff like that. And he's in his second season now, and there's a lot of outside pressure saying he needs to deliver. He needs to be the man to fire Liverpool towards the Premier League. In your role and profession, looking at Darwin, what do you think about him? Terrifying. In a good way. In a good way. <laughs> he's a, he's another perfect example of what I've just been talking about of the greatest meritocracy in the world. I've seen him play live and he's an exceptional player and will be even better and better wherever he plays football because he'll develop, he'll adapt, he'll learn. And I think what we often forget is just how incredibly young they are. Even after eight or nine or ten years, they're still very young. At the end of their career, they're still... I know one or two can now play longer, but they're still they're still young and they'll make mistakes. As I still do, and I'm thirty years older than forty years older than them. So we're all still making mistakes. And I think we, we sometimes expect too much 
too soon. And not only is football not like that, life isn't like that. Uh, so they must be given time to develop and adapt. But uh, I'm not the judge, I'm not the coach, I'm not the pundit. Uh, but uh, he's a he's a wonderful, beautiful footballer. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, that's a great answer. But I think another player that I'd just like to touch on is... Um, Ivan Tony, obviously, um, Brentford's star man. You know, you've missed him for a huge chunk of the season so far, but obviously he's due to return next year. Um, but obviously we saw, you know, a lot of the betting charges that came out and obviously was found guilty and he was obviously diagnosed with a betting addiction. So have you been working with him? All I can say about Ivan, because he's not playing at the moment and there's obviously some interest in him is I simply can't wait to see him back playing football because he's such a good man um, such a good player his story is well known and I just can't wait to see Ivan back playing football I can't say much more or much less than that but I can't wait to see Ivan play football I think there was a period when like, Gareth Southgate came out and he was like, look, how can you ban him from the training ground? Is that the right sort of... I think that's, a, that's maybe for another day or a different, a different conversation. Um, because in my past jobs, I represented people in, in tribunals. Uh, and we, we're still learning an awful lot about some of the temptations placed in front of all athletes, not, ju not, not just footballers. We're still learning a lot. Uh, and gosh um, it, was a, it was a hard time for him no doubt no doubt he'd have, he'd have learned from it but we, we must also understand that we, we, we don't live in a perfect world we don't live in a perfect world and players need support as much as anyone else in life to understand how the world operates mm -hmm. and our job <coughs> my job I, I'm just proud and I think Brentford does it particularly well is looking after. I always say the. I always say players and staff, because our job is to look after players and staff. And um, there's there's more kindness than in football than people perceive. And I hope that uh, all I hope is that Ivan Field has been he's been well supported through this. And when he comes back soon, that he's just as exciting and thrilling as he was. How's it been having him back in and around the training ground? Because I know. Sort of like he was allowed recently to re return and be amongst his teammates. I think my look says it all. It's great to have Ivan anywhere because he, he's... <laughs> so how is he like? Because I'm sure you've had conversations. I've seen pictures of you I, sort I, of I, hugging and you seem to have a really like tight-knit relationship. I, he's just another example of what I've been talking about. Mm. I admire... I admire footballers. Mm. I, I like footballers. Now, sometimes... You don't, you don't always connect with people, but uh, I'd like to think that if I... I said to you a few moments ago, if I bumped into you in five years' time, you'd remember me. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that if I bumped into Ivan in five years' time, <laughs> you might remember me. But all of them, I'd like to think, would yeah. remember something. Something. And that goes for the staff, too, because I've always told them, you can't have friends in football, you don't make friends in football. I go, why not? You can make friends... <laughs> why not? What's wrong? Yeah. And I'm, I, I'd like to still think that trying to break down some of the barriers and fears in football because some of the best people are, in my life I've met have been involved in football mm. because they're good people. Mm. So in yeah. a tough sport, in a 
often brutal sport, but they're good people on the pitch and off the pitch. Staff, players, coaches, support staff. Some of the support staff, are, they are just superb. Mm, I wanted to talk more about psychology and football more holistically because obviously we're close to a lot of professional footballers and as you mentioned before, it's a very, very stressful job. There's a lot of demands placed on these players. There's a lot of uncertainty. Players becoming free agents or they get injured. And these are things that can sort of affect your mental well-being. So what sort of things do you do for people in those type of situations where you know, they're mentally distressed, they might sort of come to you. I'm not sort of mentioning individual cases. I think it's, although, again, I'm not being defensive here because my job title, sports psychologist, but everyone at the club plays a role in that, not just me. It'd be absurd because there are some wonderful people around the club who the players know and trust and staff know and trust. So I think the environment in which which they work or particularly our club, uh, that's the plan is that everyone feels that when they come to work there, I always say, and I've said before, which is why you probably got in touch with me, with a short video, which is the basic human need is still to feel wanted and making people feel wanted and valued, which is not always easy because football's about one thing only in the end, which is the game, the match, the beautiful game. <laughs> and if you're not picked or selected or left out, or then it's maybe not so beautiful. It doesn't always love you back learned that from one of our great coaches at Brentford, Justin Cochran, says, you can love football, but it doesn't always love you back. Uh, But making people, players and staff, feel wanted and valued is still so important in an emotional sport, in a sport with unbelievable scrutiny. There's more scrutiny on football than is probably healthy, but that's because we, it's our escape. It's still our escape. It's your escape. It's, it's a wonderful, pointless, irrelevant activity, but it matters. It matters to a lot of people. And to you and me, although it might be unimportant to some people, to us it's incredibly important. Or to use the old phrase, it's the most important mm. of the unimportant <laughs> things. And it, and it is. So I, I'm not ducking the question, but it comes down to a lot of people to support players and support staff because it's, it, it's, it brings its own pressures. I think we've mentioned, you know, the beautiful game several times, but sometimes the game can also be nicknamed the ugly game um, in regards to sort of, you know, behind the scenes stuff that happened to players. You know, we've recently seen Deli Ali come out and do the brave interview where he spoke about, you know, the childhood trauma that he faced, being on sleeping tablets, seeking professional help. And... Obviously, now we're getting somewhere where players feel a bit more comfortable to speak out and say, listen, this is going on in my private life. This is what's happening. So as a psychologist, what do you think needs to change in the game for people to be more open and transparent about their circumstances? They have to feel that they are completely trusted. And they have our trust or they have people, they have trust when they're encountering difficult moments in their life. And by the way, why wouldn't they encounter difficult moments in their life? You've probably encountered difficult moments in your life. We've all encountered, there's days you just think, how do I get through? How do I get through this? That's that's how I felt when my dad passed away. Mm. How old were you? 19? 
19 is it's unfair it's cruel mm. it's horrible and I I hope the family is still together and I didn't know that mm. so that, that there's that I won't forget if I meet you in five years time I, I won't forget that you lost your father at 19 so you you require you were 19 yeah. he must have been very young himself mm. so therefore you required support and trust and here's a word that's never used enough in football <coughs> And at this point, you might crash your audience from 30k to 0k. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a bit of love in football. You do that when they score a goal, what's that? It's, it's the love. <laughs> you know. Don't be embarrassed to show some real, genuine love for someone. Not you know, in, in the relationship sense, but just the fact that like, the respect you have for someone. Because I've got, if I care for you, and they know that I care, or you know that I care for you, or vice versa, I'll do anything for you, and and vice versa. And that's when it becomes far more important than just football. But football can do funny things to you because the interest and the scrutiny, and dare I say it, the stakes are ridiculously high at times that it 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 can affect you. But if you can create, which is really hard work and takes trial and error, an environment where people feel safe and wanted and trusted, well, then we'll be doing the game, the beautiful game, and the players that come into it, and the staff that come into it, a great service because they've been through hardship. I remember some of the stories you hear from Carlos Tevez says about where he came from in Argentina, with the levels of poverty in his village. You know, he's a most, there was nothing, nothing. One of the greatest players of our life, or my life, which was Maradona. Mm. If you look at, if you watch the film Maradona, and you see where he came from, from the, the tough area of Buenos Aires, mm. it's it's a miracle he survived, let alone became the world's best player. So there's so much more we can do to understand what goes on behind just the performance. But football is getting better at that. Football is getting better at that, and my tiny grain of sand contribution of football is to try and develop that further do you think the game is ready though because we hear loads of stories again we're fortunate enough to speak to players and obviously there's three sides to every story mm. the players the club and maybe the truth might be somewhere in between do you think the game's ready because for me football um from what it seems to me can still be that sort of macho environment where People are trying to get an edge. If you find out this person's maybe in pain or suffering, that's an advantage for. I think the game is back. more ready than it's. You think so? Than it, well, it's getting, it's getting, it's, it's developing. Mm -hmm. I mean, is, it, is it? Is football the most perfect world? Mm. No, but I work in other sports. Okay. And they're not perfect either, by mm. the way. Um, and we always think that we're not doing enough, and there's always more one can do. <laughs> but the level of player care now and staff care is, 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 is getting better um, but I always think that I believe that the that 1% less than 1% I think it's 0.75 is the latest figure of people who go into academies and make it into the playing that means that there's an awful lot not going to get to where they want to do and that's incredibly disappointing can leave you fairly lonely and isolated and broken because it's the hardest part of of any life is being told at 17, 18, your dream might not come true. Now, it might come true somewhere else or at a different level. So 
there's always going to be a harsh side to elite. This is the same in any sport. Mm. If you interviewed 10 boxers now from London, they would probably say that's a brutal world. <laughs> and other worlds are equally, not ruthless, but they're, that sport is, as I was told years ago when I was starting out, sport is not an after-you activity. You say, oh, you have a go. You take my spot. You, 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 you have a go. And I remember that we were very fortunate a few weeks ago that the All Blacks came down to Brentford before they went off to play in the World Cup in France. And one of their most capped players was saying that when he joined his, his club in, in New Zealand, um, one of the senior players took him to one side and said, I'm going to help you develop. I'll train with you. I'll help you. I'll push you. I'll, go- I'll do everything to make you top class. He said, but I'm not giving you my shirt. Mm. I'm not giving you my position in this team. And he was 10, 12 years. He said, you've got to take that off me. And that's the All Blacks environment. Which is, we know about the All yeah. Blacks environment. It's an extraordinary environment. But you don't give up your shirt easily. And, and sport isn't an after, you act, an after you activity. Is it perfect? Not yet. Will it improve? Of course it will. And people will come into clubs and make it even better. Um, but we, we try to do our best to support players and staff in a, in a tough environment. Because it's the result matters to a lot of people. The result does matter. Mm. It's mad, but it it matters. It's what makes headlines every single day. So in terms of your position as well, um, let's say, I don't know, Brentford lose at four or five games in a row. Are you around more? Are you like the, the owner, Roman Abramovich, sort of <laughs> coming to the training ground? Or I, 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 I prefer other people to answer the question on, on my behalf but am I aware of how we are and how we're doing and yes of course and and you you adapt your behavior and I probably spend far too much time thinking about what I'm going to do or react and I'm I'm, I'm going to work this week and I, I, I have given it an enormous amount of thought of how to how to present myself mm-hmm. there'd be some players who are recovering from long-term injury now you're not going to bounce into the club and say, "Woo, what a week this is!" When you know they're not, they might not play for a number of months. Yeah. And on that note, um, you know, I very, very, very rarely ask an injured player how he is, if I know how he is, because if he's not going to play for a number of weeks or months, how are you? I know how he is. He's frustrated yeah, yeah. because yeah. I've also learned that the most frustrating thing in life is to be trained to do something and you can't do it. Mm. And the worst thing for football is hearing the studs walk out in the morning and they've still got trainers on, or worse, crutches or a brace. And I know that you've, you've met Ledley King. Yeah. Gosh, what a player. I also know that I heard many, many years ago that when when Ledley was playing so well for Spurs in England that uh, when, when he was fit, the Spurs' is chances of winning a game went up because he was that good but he also had a, a, a knee condition which meant that he couldn't train and play as much as he wanted to and he had to manage that and I heard this this mentioned at a conference I went, went to on, on, on performance uh, and someone who worked with him said every day when Ledley arrived I believe at, at training ground everyone would say morning Ledley and he's the most lovely man of course and kind and deep Guess what? There's another one. Kind, decent, humble, hardworking. Everything you want in a person was Ledley King. 
apart from his knee. And every day, he would get out of his car, and the first thing was, morning, Ledley, how's your knee? Because, of course, if it was right, he could help them beat the opposition at the weekend or in the European game, or play for England. Morning, Ledley, how's your knee? Morning, Ledley, how you, how's your knee? And then one day, someone stopped and said, Ledley, how are you? Mm. Rather than, how's your knee? So I don't define a footballer by his knee, calf, hamstring. And that's why I don't ask them, how are you? Or, how are you? How's your calf? I'll ask how they are, but not how their knee or calf or hamstring is, because that's the frus- that's the frustrating part. Um, so I probably rambled a bit there, but there's more to a football than their hamstring or their calf or their ligament. There really is. Definitely. I think just just a quick one from me, um, a hypothetical scenario. I'm a striker that hasn't scored in, you know, 30-odd games. I'm struggling for confidence. When I'm getting chances, I'm snatching at them. And I come to you. I'm seeking help. <laughs> I'm saying, Michael, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. What is the sort of strategy to get them back on track? I hope this isn't, the again, the, the, the get-out-of-jail answer. But I've yet to meet two players, let alone two people, let alone twins, who are the same. Mm. So I, going back to your question two moments ago, is although I've got plans always about how to project myself, how to present myself, where I might want to go with a particular morning, and I'm thinking about it all the time, until that situation presents itself, you, I, I, I can't have a pre-plan. This is what I would do next to get you back scoring goals. Mm. A, it might not be as simple as that. I think what I've found across all sports is people have the answer. That you, you just have to met, help them, guide them towards the answer. If you say, you must now do this, this and this on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that might be completely the wrong thing to do. So it's down to the person who I know, the situation, the conversation, the mood of the conversation. Um, you have to g- gauge everything before you give the or I never use the word advice because advice is the wrong word it's in there somewhere you just have to help them get it out and then of course they always want evidence and the evidence there might be the goal or the save or the game or the tackle something so they go ah there's the evidence mm-hmm. and then I present the evidence I think evidence is very handy mm. it's useful evidence and I think current football is not modern Current football is like evidence. Show me the, show me why, show me how. So it's very private. It's very personal. Uh, the good side of digital technology, you can keep in touch away from training. And I'm still amazed to this day. Gosh, I'm amazed to this day. Is how many people say that message, that moment, that call, that walk, whatever. Whew, that was invaluable. And it might even be five or ten minutes. But I've got. My job really is two things now. I've got it because, again, I've been forced into thinking about this by people such as you by asking me. And I've reached the stage of my career where I can reflect pretty well now. But particularly in football, I've really only worked in, in, in men's football. But the women's game is developing quicker than anything I've seen in my, li- in my life, by the way. It's extraordinary, the, the, the growth and the joy in, in that. But I think in football, it's down to two things. A is trust building trust and never dismantle, never dismantle trust because you can lose it in a second uh, 
And the second one is timing. Trust and timing. And I, People who know me would have stopped listening by now anyway because I've heard it all before, <laughs> but it is down to trust, building trust, and then timing. When to intervene, when to keep quiet, when to ask a question, when not to ask a question, when to support, when not to be around too much. Trust and timing are so important, and that takes a lot of practice and mistakes as well. But I'm always thinking trust. Am I, am I helping build trust? Is my timing right? Hoping you might have seen some of that over the last 40 minutes or so. Definitely, because I know Brentford obviously had a situation before you came to the Premier League and you lost in a playoff final against Fulham. Next year, you bounce back and you come back up. When I think of that, I think of ultimate psychology. That's bounce back ability. And something within me tells me you had a bit of a part to play in that. If I had a bit of a part, it was... I don't know. Was it was it that bit? I don't. Was it that much? I don't know. And, and you, it's almost immeasurable. Yeah. So just again, not talking. Can I, can I stop you? That I think also the part played was with everyone else. The pl- yeah. That was a f- that was a group achievement. It wasn't a person. Of course. Of it was an. It was everyone from the kit room to the ops room to Maria and Josie on the gate who give you the biggest smile of all time <laughs> when you come in in the morning. That all adds something. That's the one percent. It's it's. It's almost the invisible percent. <laughs> it's the invisible percent. You can't measure every. It's the invisible percent because it could be that moment, and I think above all else, and I say this to this day, is just stay tight, like a family staying tight. It's easy to fall out. Anyone can fall out, but staying tight through difficult moments is that's the test of any family, business, group, culture country even you've got to stay tight when it's tricky um and we did and the final whistle of that game i I, i've got i mean i i I couldn't i couldn't believe i literally for the first time in my life i just sat there in stunned and i welled up stunned silence of just relief followed by a bit of joy but initially just relief (coughs) and this is my role i was just thrilled for every player and every member of staff who'd been with that group for a long time and that includes the owners, the directors, the sporting directors, the coaches, some of the support staff have been there 10, 15 years. Kevin O'Connor, who played for the club in League mm-hmm. Two, League One Championship. Oh, it's, it's, it's a special moment. But my contribution is part of a contribution from everyone. It's, I, I will use that again if I may, Doc. It's invisible percentage. <laughs> invisible percentage. Yes. I like that one. Someone I wanted to speak to you about is, you know, ex Brentford boy, Ollie Watkins. We've sort of seen his career go from strength to strength since he's left the club um, for, you know, multi-million pounds. So talk to us about the man, first of all, because when you watch him, when you see him, he's very impressive, got a level temperament. And obviously now he's sort of firing Aston Villa to success. So who was the man that you left um, at Brentford? The minute you mention his name, I smile. He'd left us by the time he got his England call-up. Call I think the training ground, when we found out at Brentford, I think we started clapping because we were thrilled for Ollie. Ollie's a bit like someone like Ethan Pinnock or others like that. Again, you could not meet in any walk of life. You search the country. <laughs> you could not find a better young man than Ollie Watkins. You just can't. 
he's from Newton Abbott down in, there's not many people from Newton Abbott, Torquay, have, have broken into the, 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 the highest levels. And he is at the, the very highest level. He plays in a top team and he plays for his country. He arrived as a quite quiet, shy, polite, as he still is. He doesn't go seeking attention. Um, and his work ethic, his manners, his dedication, his politeness to people like Peter Gillum, who's our club ambassador and stadium announcer for 54, 55 yeah. years now. He would, he, would, he would still be, I would think, as respectful to Peter as he was when, when he joined. And to see a young man like that develop, uh, and I, I think he was one of the first players from Brentford we sold on to the Premier League because we, he came he came for the Championship. Obviously, uh, we're just very proud of someone like Ollie. You want nothing but good for Ollie. Hopefully, not when he plays against us because <laughs> then it's, it's different. And I saw him pre-season actually in America, and he ran past going out to warm up and Ollie, Mike, and it was just. Yes, you want him to do well in life, and he is doing well in life, but you could not meet. This is my point about footballers. You couldn't meet in any walk of life a better young man than Ollie Watkins. And look at him now, he's thriving. Two young children. And if you want to know what Ollie Watkins and footballers stand for, please Google, because today we're, speak, we're recording the day after the uh, game between Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa at the City Ground. Before that game yesterday at 2 o'clock, there was a 16-year-old on the pitch playing the last post with a trumpet, yeah, a bugler. Yeah, yeah. Normally, you have a soldier or a, a sailor or someone from the armed services to play the last post. Because of COVID, and it was cancelled three years ago, there was, it was a 16-year-old boy from Nottingham. And, this, and the, him playing the bugle in front of 30,000 people got quite overwhelming and he couldn't quite finish the last few notes. One of the most beautiful things I've seen, which is why it's a beautiful game. Now, is it flawed to a degree? Are there things wrong with football? Yes. Mm. But as that young boy was trying to get to the end of the last post, he couldn't quite get there. The whole of the city ground started clapping. The benches started clapping. The away fans started clapping. And there's a moment, you can see it today because it's been captured beautifully. The Villa and the Forest players surround that young man to give him a Come on, you've done brilliantly. And as he's just beginning to come to terms with the enormity of the situation, having to walk to the side of the pitch, there are a number of players saying, what um, what um? And there's one person next to him with his arm around him. That's Ollie Watkins. Mm. Mm. That's Ollie Watkins. What a man. Now, he might score 25 goals for Villa this season, probably will because he's flying, but that's Ollie Watkins. Mm. He's putting his arm around a 16-year-old who couldn't, quite comprehend what was happening to him who was there straight off the halfway line for the moment silence minute silence Ollie Watkins no more questions my lord what a man what what a guy and what a player as you said what a player but what a man yeah yeah that's first for you and what a player that's it so yeah the man is first for you well it matters doesn't it yeah of course I think last one from me in regards to Brentford is the gaffer Thomas Frank done an absolutely sensational job at the club how is he how is your relationship with him I'd like to think it's trusting it's based on respect I'd like to think that it's respectful and I'd like to think that if he bumped into me in five years time or ten years time at an airport in Copenhagen or 
London or somewhere. Australia. Australia. <laughs> Mind you, if you say six to me for 20 hours, you'd, you'd upgrade. Um, I'd like to think that there's 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 a bond there which has been... I didn't know him before he joined Brentford when he arrived as number three. So the relationship has developed together. And I'd like to think I help him. Uh, and we often go for a walk and a talk and a walk the dog around the training ground. And he's just, again... He's just a very, very good person <laughs> who happens to be really good now at being a head coach of a good football team. But he's a good person. Mm. And that shows in all that he does. And I think, again, if there's one moment that captures Thomas, and he wouldn't mind me, well, he probably will mind me saying this, but and I hope this interview tonight wasn't about individuals or, you know, because I couldn't talk, I can only talk generically. But on that wonderful day, August the 13th, 2021, our first ever game in the Premier League, and no one knew. Mm. Now, you can plan and prepare and you can hope and you can make predictions, but no one knew how we cope because we'd never been in that league. No one knew. Friday, Friday night. Friday the 13th, August the 13th. My niece was born a day before, so that day, (laughs) My line manager was born on August the 13th, Friday night. Arsenal. And... It was the first game in our new home with a full crowd. We'd had 4,000 there before, but never 17,500. And it was only against Arsenal and the mm. opening game of the new season after COVID. So it was the first game after COVID with a full house anywhere. Mm. And it was Brentford versus Arsenal. Now, I don't think I'll attend many better games in my life because it meant so much. Um, you shouldn't always look back too far, but it was a beautiful night. 2-0 to Brentford. And at the final whistle, the image that captured everything about the club was was Thomas went to Woody, who we, Woody's a very uh, most Woody who loves Ollie Watkins. Uh, Woody was there, uh, and we know who Woody is because he's had a difficult life and has challenges in life from his wonderful mum, part lame stables, uh, and he went straight to Woody, and Woody's face. Uh, in the words of Barry Davis for the, the recently departed Francis Lee from that wonderful bit of commentary, look at his face, <laughs> just look yeah. at his face <laughs> and look at Woody's face. And at the <laughs> final whistle, when we could all have jumped up and down and run around in circles and say, look at me, he went straight to Woody and held his hands like that. And Woody looked at him and that was the moment. That was the magic moment for me. That entire, it probably still is, and that sums up, that sums up the man. He went straight to Woody. Didn't go straight to himself or straight to wait. He just went straight to Woody. Mm. That'll do. Yeah, when you see Thomas, he looks energetic, lively, looks authentic. So what's one word that you would say from working with Thomas that you would say, this is the mark he leaves on me in one one adjective? Authentic. Oh, so I've got it. It's it's authentic. He is. It's who he is. Yeah, I think just moving on, I want to just go back to you um, very quickly. And (laughs) we've spoken so much about, you know, other people seeking help, you know, players seeking help, professionals seeking help. I'm I'm not going to like this question. (laughs) Do you have times where you struggle mentally? Well, if I'm to practice what I've been preaching about, and you have to be open and yes of course we do doesn't everyone do you, do you mind giving us some sharing a bit obviously not trying to be too I've had setbacks and moments in my life when you think 
am I going to get through? Luckily, I'm the greatest of m one of the many bits of good luck I've had in my life. I always say it's been dogged by good luck. Is thus far, I've always been healthy. I haven't had many any. I think I, I'm proud to say I've, I've not put any burden on a wonderful health service because I haven't been very often. So I'm unbelievably lucky with my health, and I look after it too. I exercise well and try to eat pretty well and do all the right things, and I sleep like I'm a champion <laughs> sleeper. <laughs> and that goes back to my father who taught me that. <laughs> he said, you'll never be any good if you're tired. Yeah. Yeah. So, but have I had moments in my life? In recent times of my life, yes. And I've got wonderful family and friends around me where I live. I think my six or seven best friends in my world live within 15 minutes of my front door. So they tell you the truth, which helps. Uh, but yes, I've had moments when you, I'm, I'm less than um, less than thrilled. You think, gosh, I'm in a spot of bother here. I'm in a real spot of bother here. Uh, I'm a self-employed me. And I started this second part of my career in 2019, which was the year before COVID. So mm. when COVID came around, every club I worked for laid me off. They had to. So I couldn't go in. I had no protection, no furlough, no grant, nothing, and I was selling my house and everything else. So it was, it was that was that was a bit edgy. So yes, I, to answer your question, don't yes, but I can spot it. I've got a lifestyle. I, my lifestyle I now try to build around my work to keep me fresh and healthy and and not too tired, because whether you're 21 or 40 years old, you can still get tired. So I've worked out my best ways of dealing with everything, and that includes a lot of that includes good rest and good sleep. I don't compromise on sleep. I can get away with the odd night, but I won't do two nights without good sleep. Never. So yes, I do. To answer your question, yes, I. I've got a brilliant athlete out there, former champion of a, a unrivaled in sport in in his sport, and he once told me this. He said, "Michael, everyone's a bit depressed at times." Now. In a, an era of, I could get challenged about by men, by experts, but um, life's not like that. It just isn't. So I've had moments when I've had to fight back and battle back, but I've got good people around me and good families, so that that helps an awful lot. But and I've had an incredibly lucky life. I mean, I'm in the top invisible percent <laughs> of, of of lucky people. I really am, and. Tonight's another example of this. You made a phone call. I said yes. It took us 30 seconds. I said, I'm coming. Yeah. Because I just liked... I knew you'd met Josh De Silva and Lee Dykes, so that was two good references. And they said, <laughs> they're good. <laughs> and they weren't wrong, by the way. And I just wanted to meet you. And that's a further piece of luck. But have I struggled mentally at times? I, I've yet to meet the person who hasn't. If we're, if we're being brutally truthful, there's moments when you think, particularly in football, because it doesn't always love you back. Justin Cochran, Brentford Football Club. What a line. Mm. I love football, you love football. But it doesn't always love you back. Yeah, true. Um, last one from me on that is, obviously in modern times, um, there's been a whole push in terms of mental health, which I think is very, very good. I'm sure you're from an era where, you know, people are maybe like ruthless towards you, like dust yourself down, get on with it mental health what mental health so how have you seen like the times change and obviously it's changed for the better but do you think in this modern day people may have gone a bit too soft I, I, I'm, I'm not jumping that way 
I'm not saying stop having like get on with it and get out of bed and get on with it because that it's like saying stop having cancer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good luck. You know, yeah. it's a good line I heard on that actually. So I say, well, don't have cancer. Well, if you if you've got that awful illness, you have to treat it, and it takes time to recover. Um, so I'm not saying stiff upper lip. I'm not saying the world's gone soft. Guess what? It's somewhere in between. Uh, I think the, the, where we must be terribly careful is not putting every setback and every disappointment because life is full of that into the mental health pot. Because there are some awful form. There's been some mental health in my family which is beyond awful, which I won't go into now. Not myself personally, but uh, in my family, and it is generally horrific uh, and that's it's a terrible case of mental health whereas when you're feeling a bit mm, disappointed in life and it hasn't treated you well or it hasn't loved you back uh, and you have to find a way through it that isn't so much mental health that's just problem solving it's solving something which is in front of you but then how dare how dare I say that because I've been so wretchedly lucky I've, you know, nice family and some you know, look at me. Look, look at the state of me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Look at yeah. the state of me. I've been lucky. Yeah. The way the world I was born into was a different world back then. I tried to stay curious. I tried, I, I tried to learn. I tried to respect people a lot. Always talk to the youngest person in the room. Always talk to the oldest person in the room. Never get too, too far ahead of yourself. And what keeps me on my toes is the is just that. Um, I think that the fear of failure or the fear of not achieving something keeps a lot of us on our toes and it keeps me on my toes really keeps me on my toes probably too much so Um, but we must be respectful we must be very aware that the world is changing and we and I and then one day you will have to change with it because you can't just sit in your spot and think I'm not changing you have to adapt. I have to adapt. We all have to adapt and understand more and help more. But there are days when you've somehow got to find a way to put one foot. Somehow. Get out of bed. Golden rule. Next one, get out of bed, make your bed and go from there. But it's not always easy because I've passed people out on the street tonight and I walked on the way home here and I just think, good God. Yeah. How have we got there? That's that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think literally the very, very last one. I think what's your advice to the Gen Z? Because we see, you know, people like Simon Sinek come out and say the Gen Z is, you know, the least resilient gen- generation that, you know, we're going to see. They don't have, they lack mental toughness and all of that kind of stuff. And we're seeing like, you know, like the way players are managed nowadays is different to back in the day so of course it is you can't shout at me i'm not having that that's unacceptable um you know what i want to transfer so i'm not going to turn up to training what's your advice to the gen z the generic bit would be still in a world that's ever ch- it's changed in the hour we've been here probably mm-hmm. something has developed in the last hour mm. I say this all the time, but I'm almost bored of telling myself this. And then to say it again, I'm thinking, am I just boring people? <laughs> but just meet and get to know as many people as possible. Which is why I came here tonight. Because I know, I know of your podcast, because Josh mentioned it, Lee mentioned it, 
I know I know of your work. I wanted to meet you. Now, to be truthful, it involved a two-hour drive, two hours on transport. There's a Docklands LR on strike at <laughs> nine o'clock, so I can click out that before they close down. But it's been worth every minute of it. And I just think in a world where it's sometimes easier not to go out to meet and see and because we can do it all from the comfort of our own chair, my advice to Gen, Gen Z would still be meet as many people as possible because that takes you somewhere else. Now, I know they will say, oh, you can do it all without <laughs> moving now. But meeting you two guys tonight, we'll remember each other. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's it. If I'd done it just by... on via digital communication wouldn't have had the same relationship because I see you in five years time on TV or radio or your wall as your podcast and business develops which it will then we've got something we've got something because we've met meet as many people as possible and I then say and also not everything that happened before you used to be useless not everything was useless mm-hmm. or is useless Embrace what you have because it's gorgeous and it's exciting. And it's amazing. It's incredible what the world offers you. But not everything was useless before. Well yeah. said. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to end this. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for being so open and transparent with us. We appreciate it. Yeah, I think we could do three or four podcasts and get <laughs> no, a you different conversation. No, you can. No, I, I can. <laughs> <tell you, laughs> no, because you no. want to speak to the Justice Silvers of this world, not the Michael Crawford of this world. No, honestly, in terms of the directions that we could go, your yeah. knowledge. Well, that's down to you two boys, guys, 30 year olds. Oh, you gave away. It's all in front of you. Yeah. But that's down to you because you've made me feel at ease. You've made me feel comfortable. And I hope that this is is interesting or whoever mm. listens to it and because it's a long one I hope your editing skills are, I hope your editing we've done we've done two hours with Josh so what a young man yeah. what a young man well again what as a you, special young man definitely but again as you said speak to the youngest person and the oldest speak person the oldest in the room <laughs> so um, big up Josh De Silva we can't wait to see you back fit obviously Absolutely. soon come and what a player and what a guy so we're going to leave it what there. What a guy and what a player. What yeah. a guy and what a player. <laughs> <laughs> At least we've learned. <laughs> we're going to leave it there. That's another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast. Until next time, over and out. Peace. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.